Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Microsoft Surface and Teams. At CDW, we get the future of remote meetings works differently. Oh, going right from lunch directly into a meeting, that could be awkward. But with Microsoft Surface devices with Teams orchestrated by CDW, the future works better. Touchscreen voice capabilities keep Teams engaged and productive, enabling you to always collaborate with confidence. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining. Psst, you have a spinach in your teeth. Thanks for the tip, man. IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Find out more at cdw.com slash surface. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, America, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Great episode for you today, guys. This is just one of those where I knew within within two minutes of recording that it was going to be a good episode makes my life so much easier this this isn't the easiest podcast in the world a lot of times uh you know there's a lot of research involved and even still i feel underprepared uh, sometimes i don't even have a chance to research at all or i'm just lazy or i'm going through some crap or i have a million other things going on and uh and oftentimes uh, i'm worried i have dumb questions or crazy questions and or I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And then I can be awkward. And in general, I sometimes make dumb, awkward jokes because I, I kind of like awkwardness. I sort of enjoy it. And so I sometimes do that intentionally and, uh, and unintentionally. And then I'm not the, I'm just, I don't have the best social skills. I'm a bit of an introvert. And, 
and then you know my guests are sometimes introverts as well and they're and they're a little uh, this maybe their first time doing something like this and and uh they're nervous i'm nervous and who knows how this is gonna go and sometimes it can take five to ten minutes to get things kind of really rolling and this was off and running right away whoo easy peasy and uh, I, I say all this just because I know this is a science podcast. I imagine I have some listeners out there that are also a little, uh, a little socially awkward, a little more introverted, and and uh, like myself. So I hope that through doing this podcast, I'm a bit of a role model in that regard. I'm, I'm not always. I don't have all this. All this confidence stuff that's all the rage. I quadruple question and uh, and guess myself just to no end and and uh, and I still get out there and approach people and pursue my interests anyway. So I hope that inspires you to do the same and to overcome your whatever your fears or hang-ups are and uh so yeah how's that a little inspirational message right at the right at the beginning of the episode wasn't that pleasant please um if you want to hear me ranting all about all sorts of stuff um go on to patreon.com slash shane moss where you can um hear me talking about all sorts of different things putting out uh trying to put out a new episode every week and a variety of categories um and just just being uh really really experimental so you can check that out there if you like and make sure and check out the laughable app for all of your comedy podcasting needs and if you already have a laughable make sure and subscribe to me, your friend, Shane Moss, and you can hear me on all sorts of podcasts that I'm a guest on, and when I'm a guest on something, boom, pops right up in your thing, and you don't always, uh, you know, you get to hear me talking talking all science about science stuff all the time. Sometimes I'm on, uh, I'm on a regular old podcast just telling dick jokes, and that can be fun as well. And and uh, so yeah, so follow me on there, and then you get uh, you get more you get more more sides of me <laughs> if you care to, um, or heck, you can even follow some of your other favorite comedians. So check out Laughable and Ramin Nazer's new book, Cave Paintings for Future People. And that's about it. Enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I am still in Sydney. Um, I'm having a wonderful time, and I am here talking with evolutionary social psychologist at the University of New South Wales, Sydney, 
Candace Blake is joining me. <laughs> Hi. For, I, 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 like, I like that you're the fourth person that I've had from UNSW Sydney, and none of you actually know that you work at UNSW yeah. Sydney. I think They've that like might have been a name change name or, or something, something like that. We've got a campus somewhere else now. It's all too confusing. I've had to too much to worry about. all of you guys about where you work. It's amazing. That's just never happened before. I love it. Um, So, first off, fourth guest that I've had while being in Australia. You're the first Australian. Woohoo! Yay! I'm so excited. Yeah, good. So, we, the the last podcast I had, we had Tom Denson on. And right at the very end, we just talked a little bit about just, just very, very briefly touched on a little bit of work that you guys had done regarding ov- ovulation and um and he had mentioned I, I think the only thing that we talked about if my memory serves me is uh something about kind of uh it disproved the idea of of women wearing red dresses during ovulation so mm. so that that was that was also i know you've done a lot more yeah, work no, in, right. in that field that, so sure. i figured that would be a good entry point and ovulation is just one of those fascinating i try to think about it at least once a month um and <laughs> so hey um <laughs> so um but uh it, it really is a, a fascinating and also to be perfectly honest, uh, it's a little more comfortable having a female talking about oh, ovulation yes. than having like Tom be like, "Why don't hey, Tom? Why don't you and I talk about how female, yeah, let's talk about uh, females?" Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so let's get into it. I want. Uh, uh, let's uh, throw me everything you know yeah. <laughs> about ovulation. Oh, look, absolutely. So, um, you know, I started looking at this. I ran this massive study and it had a, a variety of different parts. We got like 180 women in to test these ideas of ovulatory shift effects um, because there's a, uh, it's quite a controversial field right now. You know, there's been, there were these two meta-analyses that were published in the last few years looking at um, some of these ovulatory shift effects. They were looking at face preferences and what I'm going to talk to you about now is not related to that. Um, but needless to say, there's this kind of controversy in the background around around these shifts and whether they exist and what it means if they do exist. Yeah. So, so can you can you kind Go of into di- that? define yeah. what the controversy sure, is? I've sure. heard I've heard a bit of it. My, um, Good friend of mine is Marty Hazelton. Yeah, great. This sometimes, but she hasn't. Uh, she was the first guest on the show, and we didn't get into the controversy, which I know can be frustrating. Yeah, but. yeah. So, um, you know, people are interested in ovulatory shifts because um, of what it might potentially say about women's behaviour when they're fertile versus not fertile, and what could have adaptive significance. Um, and you know, we're, we're kind of talking here about biological influences on behavior. And some of the controversy has been related to um, the methods that people have used to measure ovulation and fertility, right? So um, just like any scientific field, the measures that people, the methods that people use to measure when a woman is fertile have changed over time. And um, there's quite a common way of measuring these things using what's called a counting method. And it basically means you kind of go, oh, a cycle is pretty much 28 days. A menstrual cycle is pretty much 28 days. So let's say that a woman probably ovulates on day 14, which is halfway through. 
And then you kind of work out a little window because a woman's only ever fertile for six days, right? right? So it's, it's actually more that window that you care about rather than the exact day of ovulation. So then let's work out that window and um, we can kind of just figure out, oh, well, if your cycle starts here, it'll probably end in 28 days. So if we just kind of count forwards 14 days, then we should be able to see when you're ovulating. And a lot of the work that tested these ideas of ovulatory shift effects have used these methods. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that that's an example of any scientific field growing over time is you right. then start where... Certainly you know, not perfect. They're not perfect, right. right. Um, and since then, people have been using hormonal methods, which are much more reliable, you know, um, not so kind of suspect to false report as well, or even just um, ignorance, you know, uh, women don't walk around every day kind of tracking exactly when their cycle started. You know, some women do, period apps are much more common now, but when you're relying on self-report and memory, you've got a whole lot more noise and variation going on. So... Um, Luteinizing hormone tests, which are urine tests, are a really great way of kind of giving a proxy for ovulation, and that's what people are starting to do more of now. But you've got this history of um, of these other methods which weren't perfect. Um, and in fact, when we say weren't perfect, when you really look at them, and this is some work that I did, um, when you really look at how accurate they are, they're really not very accurate at all. All right, so this is where part of that controversy okay. comes from, is from these methods. What are we talking about now? Controversy. Controversy. Oh, oh it's still at the controversy. Yeah, it's been so, like my entire so, career. Uh, yeah, so so I imagine the other side of it is then uh, not not just uh, the difficulty of or the inaccuracies of measuring this in the past. And, yeah. Which is just all like you said, always an issue with science. And, mm. uh, but also, uh, what what this is saying about uh, about. Um, females as well, right? right? It's a, is this kind of like issues with uh, deterministic ideas or yeah. something? Is that is that what part of the controversy is? Yeah. So I think part of the controversy was people looked at those measures and when any of the findings that we have found, this is all just, um, they're just statistical artifacts. This is just poor methodology. And if we clean up the methodology, none of this stuff is going to replicate. That's been the argument on one side. Okay. Then the argument on the other side is like, hey, look, just because the measures aren't perfect doesn't mean there's not some uh, some truth going on to what we're seeing here and we are replicating some of these effects when we do look at hormones and when we do measure ovulation in much more bio biologically driven ways like luteinizing hormone tests yeah. so hey you shouldn't just shit on newton because einstein came around well basically yeah, yeah. so you know let's give people a little bit of room here right. and look at what is we're continuing to see effects for over time and i think um that you know there's been People are writing papers every year, kind of in the last five years, this has really ramped up on these two kind of positions going backwards and forwards going, it's, it's a thing, it's not a thing, it's a thing, it's not a thing. I love science rivalries, by It's really quite a thing uh, to watch and try and just see how it all kind of comes about. And um, we looked at this idea of red clothing because it was one of these areas that had been both measured using counting methods, but then some more recent work had also looked at the idea of red clothing based on hormones, right? So there are particular hormones that um, peak when women are in the fertile period, right? And that's high estradiol, right? So high estradiol, uh, estradiol peaks over that six-day fertile window. And at the same time, during that window, progesterone is much lower, so if you were going to link hormones to something that you're saying is related to fertility, you would expect potentially that if there was a kind of hormonal mechanism going on, that it would be related to high estradiol and low progesterone. Um, so 
recently a paper had come out that I'd looked at red clothing and hormones and they had found that uh, women were more likely to red- wear red clothing when estradiol was high and progesterone was low. Okay. Which is giving you this idea that, okay, well, maybe that women are wearing more red when they're fertile. Now, why do people care about that? Well, it's related to these other kind of big uh, questions about the evolution of women's mating strategies, of about um, estrus, you know, do women, is there evidence of women kind of showing these behavioural manifestations of fertility? Right. Right? And that's that's really interesting for a bunch of reasons. Um, so... That's kind of the background of why people looked at it. Right. And um, we, we looked at it again in this, in this big study that we did. Um, and part of the strength of what we were doing was um, that we, we had a wide range of ages, right? So we had women who were from 18 all the way up to like 38. And some of the previous hormonal work had only used women who were very young. Right. It's kind of important to extrapolate this out, you know. Women are, don't just stop being fertile when they're young. So if you're kind of interested in this idea, you would expect it's not just going to be something that happens when women are really young. Right. Um, so, you know, so we got a whole bunch of women in. Do you want me to, yeah, sorry. So, um, so we looked at this, right? So we had 178 women come in and um, we did a bunch of different things with them. But part of what we did was take photos of what they were wearing. And we took photos of what they were wearing when they uh, were in that ovulatory phase, okay, so in that six-day fertile window. We knew they were in that phase because we measured luteinizing hormone through their urine, right? We had them do all these, all these urine tests until we pinpointed when they were ovulating and then we got them into the lab really quickly. We took photos of what they were wearing. We didn't tell them what it was about. We just said, oh, we're just, you know, this is the next thing that we're interested in as scientists. Um, and we also did the same so, so thing. So you, you just like, they come in and you just take a picture of them. You don't tell them it's... Okay. No, we don't tell them anything. Right. They're part of a, a bigger study, so we did a few other things as well. Right. Yeah, okay. but they just know they're coming into the lab to do the next phase of their experiment. Okay. Yeah. And uh, the other thing we did was we then took a, an equivalent time frame when they weren't fertile. Okay, so this was just before uh, menstruation started or just before their next cycle was about to start. So we tracked their cycles for a number of months. So we knew when this would be. And we did the exact same thing then. And we just got them in and took a photo of what they were wearing. So we had this really cool kind of within subjects design, which allows you to kind of control for um, variation in the differences between what women would usually wear, right? So I may not wear red just because red looks bad on me, right? Right. So if you see, if you're trying to compare, say, me and some other woman, right, you've got to take that into account. However, um, with the design we did, it was really, really great because we were able to kind of look at those differences between what the women were wearing. Um, we didn't actually replicate past results though, okay? So... What we found was that all in all, when you take uh, these kind of differences into account and you look at it in a variety of different statistical ways, we found that we didn't see this association between hormones and fertility and wearing red clothing across the board, unless you just looked at very young women. Okay. All right. So remember I said previously we'd found this effect, but the sample was quite young. So we did find this effect of high estradiol and low progesterone on wearing red clothing when we looked at a very young sample. So we're talking 18 to 22 years old. Hmm. So what does that mean? Yeah, what in the world does that mean? So um, I think one way of thinking about it is, you know, women like there are a, a variety of different things you can do. So let's just talk particularly about mate attraction, right? So I'm not going to say that any time women wear red, they're just out to attract men and, and that's all women do with their clothing. It's much more complicated than that. 
All right. But at the same time, one of the things we do know is that when women are fertile, they're more interested in attracting men and they're more interested in sex in general. Okay, this shouldn't be too surprising, even for people who don't like the idea of biology influencing behavior. Right. Okay. It, 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 this is just, there's a lot of research on it in humans, right. a lot of research on it in a lot of other animals as well, okay? We don't have to be that unique in all aspects. Yeah, I mean, we're all kind of here because of mating. Right. <laughs> it's been important be, in yeah, the history of our species, sure. all species. So um, so you do find that when women are fertile, they're more interested in sex, more interested in, in attracting men, more flirtatious. Um, so one of the ways you could consider this is that at that same time, it would make sense that certain aspects of their behavior, if they are thinking about it in that way, would manifest in a way that would increase their attractiveness. All right. And um, a kind of parallel body of work has looked at the effect that red clothing has on women's attractiveness. And it in definitely increases women's attractiveness. Really? Yeah. Guys like red more. Uh, well, they, they make perceptions about women wearing red that those women are more sexually open and that mm. those women are more sexually attractive. By and large, I don't think it works when you're over a particular age. I think if you're postmenopausal, it doesn't have the same effect. But um, for a kind of a reproductive age thing, you, you see these effects where red, you know, it helps in those ways. Huh. And, well, and, and then now I guess it works the other way too. If you're a guy and and you see a younger woman wearing red, that's, that means you have higher chances potentially, right? Well, I think what it could mean is you're seeing a younger woman wearing red and you're seeing um, at least an indicator that she's that, that something conscious is going on around wanting to put forward a particular impression of attractiveness. Right. Okay, whether that means that she is wanting to have sex or wanting to do a totally different story. Right. Right. Um, there are lots of various ways that attractiveness is beneficial to both men and women. All right. So when you see these behaviors about women engaging in kind of attractiveness driving behaviors, it doesn't always mean that they're interested in having sex. But maybe they just want free drinks. Or maybe something. maybe they do. Maybe they just understand that they live in a society where to be attractive as a woman generally gets you perks all around, right. and to be unattractive as a woman has has negative side effects. You know, should that be the case? No, <laughs> probably not. Shouldn't, right. but it is. And you know, you you kind of got to strategize where you need to in certain ways. Right. Um, speaking of strategizing, would it be possible for, uh, for guys to like make up some cologne eventually that, <laughs> that has, uh, what, what's it called? Estradiol? Estradiol. Yeah. yeah. Like to, what do you mean? To I, put to on ma women yeah. Maybe, maybe make a female more receptive or something like that. Spike those hormone levels. Oh, to spike women's hormone yeah, levels. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I, I I think there's. I'm um, just thinking things. Oh out, look, you know? just, no, I'm just I understand. Right, just throwing the ideas around. I I don't I don't have a lot of um a lot of understanding about what kind of smells could spike estradiol. There might be such a thing. I think that um there definitely does seem to be these effects where estradiol is high, sexual desire is also higher. Hmm. I mean, you would think that. So, say you're you're a guy in a relationship. So females have apps for tracking their cycle. Yeah. Um. It might be it might be in my best interest to have an app tra tracking my girlfriend's cycle as well, so I know when she's extra receptive. Hey, look, it could be actually, and and I do don't do know some men who are interested in that form of thing. You know, interested in the women they have around them and where those cycles are at. Not necessarily to you know to try and get a payoff of mm, this might be the time that she's feeling a bit you know amorous. 
Um, well, also you got to keep an eye out on around that. Well, yeah, right. So it's a mate guarding now. Eh? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. sure. Yeah, right. I, I think that, you know, you kind of got to have a balanced approach about these kinds of things. In, in the past, there is no doubt that the idea that female biology influences women's behaviour has been used to really stereotype women in a negative way and to kind of um, to really justify some pretty sexist views. All right, so I'm talking here about this whole idea of even when you go really far back in history that women had a womb that wandered throughout their body and it, you know, made them very hysterical. Do you I know about this stuff? I actually didn't know. I know. Oh, lot, yeah, this is, a, this is a total womb. thing. I think it was Aristotle, but it might not. It might have been someone else. But we're talking like ancient kind of philosophers, right? It's just like a weird ghost moving about Yeah, yeah, they the thought that the womb wandered throughout the body. Like an animal, like a little I animal. I it did. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, they were like, they also said that um, the womb would react to certain smells. Flowers, for example, made the womb happy. <laughs> but fetid odors, you know, you could kind of think now like CEO boardrooms, they make the womb unhappy. And, mm. and this, this concept was used to then justify later on why women uh, exhibited behavioural signs that they thought was abnormal, so basically any kind of emotion, and they, they would say this is like a hysteria. So the idea of female hysteria throughout history was linked to this idea of wandering rooms. So when I call myself the womb whisperer, that's scientifically <laughs> inaccurate. That's not Probably, yeah. Yeah, okay. I don't know a lot of research on womb whispering. <laughs> okay. Maybe you could make animal noises given it's supposed to be like wandering like a little animal. <laughs> That's uh, I well, I mean, I guess it, it it it's easy to look back and be like, what a bunch of crazy ideas. But I mean, of course, it took a long time for humans to figure out the, how the body worked and to be consciously aware of yeah, look, of it did these different bits of how anatomy came together. I mean, we're yeah. still trying to figure we out. We are. You look, out. you're absolutely right. But even having said that, it's not that long a history ago that biological ideas were also used to to treat women poorly as well, right? right? So um, there's been a real kind of hesitance right now to look at uh, PMS, for example, premenstrual syndrome, or um, some of those disorders like that, because in the past they have also been used to be like, oh, well, you can't employ a woman as a boss because she's just going to get her period and then she's going to be all, you know, all in a, in a bad mood. And yeah. so it's kind of like, yeah. You got right. to, and I think that this is part of the the part of the um, concern people have about even looking at biological influences of behaviour is they've been used for bad reasons in the past, right. and chances are some jerk will try and use them for bad reasons in the future as well. Yeah, and I don't mean just men here. You know, women do our we do our own sexist things towards men as well. I'm not saying it's a one sided story, sure. but I think that understand uh, that kind of explains part of the hesitancy people have with these kinds of ideas. Yeah, we don't want to go back to putting women in menstrual tents. No, we don't. I mean, they still do that in a lot of places around the world. But yeah, we definitely really. Know. Yeah, it's a thing. Yeah, I didn't. I, man, I am very ignorant. It's, I didn't realize oh, they were yeah, still using the old menstrual. Tents. Well, I mean, I think it depends on the kind of the kind of society that you live in. But the idea of segregation when uh, a woman is menstruating is mm. is uh, is a part of historically a, a number of religions, um, and. If you look at the function of it, so the the kind of proximate mechanism is this idea that blood is dirty, you know, or different things like that. But basically underlying, from what I understand, underlying a lot of them is blood is dirty, it's a disgust thing, oh, we better send women away. But you know how it works is the cultures that were really good at doing it would know when a woman was going to ovulate. Right. So part of it is a mate-guarding function. 
All right, so you know that, all right, well, she's she's in the menstrual tent now. In a couple of weeks, she's probably going to be fertile. But another is a way that if you're wanting to uh, get her pregnant, and I'm saying this kind of like it's a one-on-one thing, and I don't think it always was. I think it was quite often a, a, a bit more of a wider view on what the family or the patriline needed at that particular point in time. But when you know these things, you can um, you can keep women breeding. Right. So there's a there's a really interesting kind of history about it all as well. And the cultures that are very reliant or that were reliant on menstrual taboos and putting women in menstrual tents and segregating them in that way actually show increased uh, reproductive fitness because of it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So this is... Um, it, that's yeah. i mean there's still the upside is sometimes like evolutionarily sometimes it's paid off to like be nice to women as well. sometimes it is wow <laughs> no, while, no, no that's a terrible idea well, like if i go hey why don't you come on out of that tent maybe two weeks later yeah, that will pay off true. for me they'll remember yeah. that i was the one that freed them that's from true the tent. yeah assuming that it's a culture that values female consent <laughs> though right and what sure. they want yeah yeah oh Ah, uh, it's dark history. Subject, I, I know, know, right? You got to kind of maintain it too. You've got to be willing to deal with the past of it and then not use that to worry you about looking at what we find right now in the data in, a, in an accurate way because I think it can be very threatening for many people. Mm. I mean, this is, uh, it, this is still, I mean, very interesting for, I mean, even, I mean, I get people having concerns about all of that but that's still i would think that a lot of women would feel um that there's a lot of benefit to being able to be more mindful of exactly why their bodies are reacting in this way at specific times i mean when uh, do you feel like knowing about this research has, I, I don't mean to get too personal, sure. but do you feel like it's made you more mindful about the way that you see yourself or your particular behavior? Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. So one of the things that I um, probably, you know, a huge highlight for me in doing uh, the recent menstrual studies work that I've done is, um, you know, I worked with a sample that was 18 to 38, um, but mostly the women were between, say, 18 and 28 you know, um, and even then it would have been skewed towards the young. And uh, the vast majority of the women that I interacted with who I was having doing these tests, now at the time we didn't tell them they were tests to measure ovulation, but by the end of the study we did. And at that point you you see the kind of look on their face when they realise they can track their cycle. And they realise when they see the lines come up on the tests, you know, that that means something about their body. You know, and at the end, you're able to explain to them, look, you know that you have hormones that at certain points in the cycle could be 600 times greater than at other points, right? Like that's a pretty big difference. And um, I think that uh, the idea of having that kind of knowledge of your own body can really give you a sense of agency and of understanding what's going on. Um, And I think that from my understanding, a lot of the work on sexual assertiveness and on women's ability to kind of explore their own sexuality in a positive way is also related to having an understanding of your body, not necessarily of your hormones, but of, of, of it being okay and something that you're interested in. Um, and I really love that aspect of the work of being able to work with young women and, and really have them gain that self-knowledge. And I think that, um, you know, it's my personal opinion that knowledge like that is power. Yeah. You know, it, it, do, it is an empowering experience. The The thing that can become disempowering on a kind of 
a wider scale is when people then use a biological insight to justify that a woman or a man doesn't have a choice about their behavior. Now, that's a whole different kettle of fish. I mean, I think part of that is just growing pains, though. I I think trying to wrap your head around some of these concepts is still pretty new uh, to, I mean, what, I, I mean, what? Uh, when, when was when was Dar- Darwin alive? It wasn't oh late eighteen hundreds. Uh, yeah, late eighteen hundred. And then fields like evolutionary psychology and biology are exceptionally new. One of yeah. the newest sciences out there. So I think that it it's going to take some time. There's, mm. I mean, it's it's still we're still trying to convince people that evolution is a thing. So yeah, it's right. going to take a little bit of time. And then I I think initially. Um, it is easy to think about, um, these things in terms of biological determinism, because when you first start hearing about the genes, it's just such a shift in perspective that you kind of have to take on that point of view of the genes. And, and to do that, then you're, then kind of when you're looking at life through the genes, then that's all you're seeing, you know? And so I think it just takes a little while to settle into that first and then see life from that point of view. And then you can get a more holistic view, uh, eventually and kind of, um, let go of the kind of genetic determinism. Yeah. Um, Look, I would hope so. I, 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 I feel like slowly but surely things are kind of heading in that direction. I think the the other the other kind of issue is like all things we're talking about the you know effect these effects are nuanced. It's not that simple as oh you've got this hormone oh therefore you are more competitive. Like that's just not how hormones work. It's not how genes work. The more we understand about biology, the more we're understanding that things are very context specific. You know a gene will switch on in a certain environment. A hormone will do a certain thing in a particular environment and then there's feedback from the environment to the hormone as well right so you know if you you've got to kind of be willing to dance with those ideas and have room for that interaction to truly understand how these effects work and i feel like we're heading in that direction that people start to get that yeah i mean i i started this podcast to uh help kind of educate the public about some of these ideas and now um roughly uh three years later or heading into the third year anyway uh me and the listeners are just far more confused than when when we started (laughs) i don't don't know i don't Uh, know if we progressed past the baseline going up and down yeah yeah. like uh, i don't know if if we're any better off having learned well it's it's like a bit of a dance isn't it science is a bit of a dance yeah (laughs) there's a moving backwards and forwards and sometimes there are leaps and bounds and then you realize that oh wait this thing that we thought was a thing might not be a thing Right. You go backwards, you go forwards. I think we need an appreciation of just like a lot of things in life, you know, it's not necessarily a, a linear trajectory. So I think this uh, this uh, transitions smoothly into um, some of your other work. You mentioned uh, female agency. Can uh, mm. Define what do you mean by female yeah, agency? Yeah, sure. So um, this is actually something that I came to from my background in, in gender studies and in feminism. So my first degree was in women's studies. It's always been a real passion of mine to try and understand, uh, you know, differences between men and women and uh, in particular the history of the treatment of women in, in most societies, you know, and why they generally have less power than men. So it's kind I of am a, sorry about that. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, as a, as a white educated woman, it. my life is far better than the vast majority of women in the world. So. Right. Um, you know, I, I think that kind of needs to be acknowledged as well, right? Right. 
But um, the idea of female agency is something that uh, many people are interested in, but particularly has has been of interest in kind of the feminist world. So agency is this idea of um, intentionality, right, of uh, being independent, of being self-determined, you could say. So you can have agency in a lot of different areas. You, sh- you could have social agency, right, the ability to kind of mould your social environment how, in the way that you would like for it to go. People talk about agency in terms of political agency, right? So being able to kind of change your political environment in a particular way. Then there's personal agency, all right? So it kind of operates on all different struct, on all different levels that you could say. So personal agency is an ability to, to um, kind of actualize your goals and fulfill on those goals in an intentional goal-directed way. It doesn't always mean that the goals will perfectly turn out, but it's, it's you know, that idea of personally fulfilling something. It's kind of related to assertiveness in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I was really interested in, in uh, female agency, partly because, um, you know, we know as scholars and even intuitively just as, you know, everyday common folk that people who lack agency and who lack those abilities, whether it's through some personal trait distinction of their own, like um, they just are not particularly agentic people, or whether it's because they're in social circumstances that uh, really deny their ability to, to act in agentic ways – that people who lack agency are poorly treated and they tend to be a lot more victimised. Now, um, in my own particular research in terms of sexual assault and sexual aggression, I um, had found some correlational work that seemed to suggest that this pattern of people with low agency being treated poorly would also transfer to sexual assault. Um, you know, there's some work that Neil Malamuth did um, over a number of years looking at men's likelihood of uh, sexually assaulting women. And, you know, if you um, interview some of these men, some men, hashtag not all men, uh, but some men will say that if a woman is not able to uh, punish him afterwards and if no one will find out, then then they will force sex on her if she doesn't want it. Mm. Um and those ideas of her not being able to punish him and her not being able to stop him from doing so, these are kind of indirect indicators of agency, okay. right? So I was interested in um, whether this whole thing with agency might be related to sexual assault and in particular whether it was going to be related to the actual amount of agency a woman did have or whether it was about how much agency you thought she had, all right? So, um, you know... We make perceptions of our social environment and, on, uh, and about other people all the time. And often we act on the perceptions, right? You know, we, this is just kind of common sense. You, whether someone, whether you think they lack agency may be more important than the amount of agency they actually have, at least in guiding your behavior, right? right? Until there's an opportunity for you to be uh, corrected that your opinion or your perception was incorrect. Um, so... One of the things that I did was uh, do these surveys. I think it was about 600 men um, in the end and we uh, looked at the kind of conditions under which they would perceive that women lacked agency and whether in fact these perceptions increased the likelihood of them sexually exploiting women. Um, And we did this in a bunch of different ways. The thing that we used to manipulate perceptions of agency and to see if, you know, if this would affect perceptions of agency was sexualization. Um, And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, sexualization refers to a bunch of different things as a, it's kind of a cultural tendency that things are just getting more sexualized. You know, people are talking about sexual values. They're very upfront about they're polyamorous now, they're this now. We kind of, we seem to, as a culture, be getting more preoccupied with this stuff. 
Um, and I don't have an opinion on that being positive or negative. It's not a moral judgment, right? right? But one of the things that people do tend to have quite a moral position on is the sexualization of female clothing and in particular the clothing of young girls. So the, you also do see that um, girls' clothing in particular is getting more sexualized. People tend to have a bit of a problem with that. We didn't look at girls at all. We just looked at women. Um, but we looked at if you present images of men that were images to men of women who were sexualized or not sexualized, if they make stereotypical judgments about the women in sexy clothes and they think those women lack agency. And to that extent, do those perceptions of low agency increase the likelihood that they think those women will be sexually exploited and that they would be more likely to sexually exploit women themselves? Okay, so potentially if a if a woman is wearing uh, sexier clothing in in a guy's mind, that might be because she needs to because she has less uh, control of, over. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure on, um, like we didn't ask them, you know, right. what was kind of going on to have them think she had less agency. My belief as to what, why you would make that stereotypical judgment, and I should point out it's not just men. Okay, women think this about women in sexy clothes as well, right? So um, I think there'd be different things going on for the sexes, which we can, we can get to. Um, but I think what's going on for men is this idea of um, what, you know, what the psychologists like to call sex goal activation. All right, so it's pretty simple. You see, you're a dude, right? You're a heterosexual man. You're attracted to women. You see um, a woman in sexy clothes and you think, oh, sexy clothes, right? And a part of you is kind of it primes a bit of a sex goal, right? Now, if she's a really, really attractive woman, you might be like, okay, sex is on the mind. This is all I mean by a sex goal. It doesn't mean you're necessarily like, I must sleep with that woman now. Like, that's the one. I like the term sex goal. Yeah, it's quite kind of cool. I like it That's actually what I yell in the bedroom. Go, 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 go. We should definitely roll that out. Um, So the idea is that sex becomes on the mind, right? And, um, one of the things is, you know, people are not always necessarily very good at holding multiple goals on the mind at the same time, right? So um, Joran Vias, who's an Italian social psychologist who does a lot of work on objectification and on these kinds of um, sexualized things, um, one of the things that he's shown is that when men hold these kind of sex goals, they're more likely to think of women as sex objects, so the idea is sex goals activated in you and you start to perceive the world in line with that goal, right? So kind of like you could even think about it in a very removed sense. Like, I don't know, a lot of people have had that experience where they're about to buy a car and then all of a sudden they see that car everywhere. Yeah, that okay, same yeah. model, you just see it. It's kind of like because you become oriented to a goal you have psychologically yeah. and it shifts where you put your attention. Yeah, this. I mean, this happens non-conscious. If you have a favorite soft drink, you're Absolutely. Going, that, that's going to stick out to you more when you walk into the convenience store or whatever. You're going to see that brand, that label more readily than whatever other soft drink that that's you're exactly the same in. kind of thing okay. so the idea here you have a sex goal activating or that's activated right and then you see uh you know you look at the woman in sexy clothes and instead of thinking about all of her uniquely human aspects and <laughs> her warmth and her competence and you know what she does for a career and all the interesting things that she might say instead you're just thinking mm, someone i might be able to have sex with Okay. Right. So um, it limits the uh, attributions you make towards her because you're thinking about her in one way. I see. Now, um, 
Often when people think about someone in one way like that and it's a sexual way, you perceive they lack agency. I see. Those two just tend to go together really Right. Well. Okay. So now, yeah, you're just thinking about this body. Yeah. And, and probably you're thinking about what you can do to that body, right. meaning the body becomes an object and right. not an agent. Right, right, right. right. Uh, that, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this is, yeah, I, I, I mean... If I'm sitting there reading <laughs> reading a book about uh, neuroscience or something, and then some attractive woman <laughs> walks by, <laughs> my my goals do shift a little bit. Right. I mean, and, and I think women find the same thing when really attractive men walk by. Sure. You know, like this is just we're we're, we're oriented to to be mindful we're of these primates. kinds of things. Right. We are. Yeah. Now the. Um, the problematic part is this. It's not necessarily that when men see sexy women that they think about sex, all right? I, I, I don't think that's a problem. I, I think that's that kind of makes sense. Okay, the problem is two parts. One is when men see sexy women, they tend to think that those women want to have sex more than those women do. Mm-hmm. Now, when they make that judgment, some men are more likely to then sexually assault those women. So we're coming to that that. It's kind of stock standard, oh, she led me on, even in what she was wearing. Right. Which is, you know, still a huge problem now. We've still got judges, right, making court decisions going, oh, well, was it really right? Because, you know, you were wearing a skirt, right? right? Obviously, you wanted a little bit, which is just ridiculous, right? So the history of this is also one of, oh, tricky, you know, bad. These are kind of like touch and go ideas here. Um so yeah well this it's it's tricky too because i mean just we are kind of driven to just overperceive ourselves not just in our ability to in our chances with women but as drivers or in our intelligence or anything else our our brains seem to have evolved this bias to uh have a little overconfidence to yeah. kind of keep us moving forward yeah well it's bit. definitely self-serving right right and um i mean i know that marty hazelton and david bus has done some work on this as well showing that these particular biases are actually quite adaptive for men right because if you think about the um the logic of it right to the extent that male reproductive success is going to be reliant on sexual opportunity it's better to overperceive that hey this person could be interested and right. then approach them and be turned down than it is to not approach them, lose the opportunity, and then you're worse off. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and again, these are these are just um, you know statistically you're, you're finding this doesn't. There's all sorts of individual differences. I I, I don't approach women ever. <laughs> I, I got I got rejected once. Didn't yeah. care for it. I'm like, yeah. nah, never doing that again. I wait for <laughs> I wait for women to come to yeah, me, right. which means I'm lonely a lot. <laughs> but <laughs> but there's but uh, that, I'm just pointing out that that uh, I want to remind people that mm. that there's all sorts of individual differences um, there are. when we're talking about these things. But absolutely. But it's still it's just absolutely fascinating when you can still find that in a large sample size that there is a statistical uh, higher probability of of these findings yeah and look i think it's really important though to mention a mention a caveat right and we did find that women in sexy clothes are perceived by others in such a way that those people more likely to sexually assault those women 
but we never found at any point a direct relationship between sexy clothes and assault. It was always a relationship that was mediated by what was going on in the perceiver's mind. And why I think that's really important and why I say, you know, we've got to remember this big caveat as is the point is not women in sexy clothes are going to get assaulted, so they should stop wearing sexy clothes. And if they do wear sexy clothes, well, they shouldn't really complain if they get assaulted because there's research that shows that sexy clothes are related to assault. Okay, no, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that people make judgments of women in sexy clothes and those judgments encourage certain people to then assault women. So if we're wanting to really rectify what is going on here, the onus is not on women should stop wearing sexy clothes because when they do, then we'll deal with sexual assault. That's not what's going on here. The onus is on being sensitive to and educating the perceivers about the kinds of judgments they make and where those judgments lead certain people to go psychologically. So are you finding, um, when I mention individual differences, are Mm. there, um, are there findings in, in differences in different personality traits and how, uh, and how, how they make it, these judgments. Yeah. So we, um, we actually included a, like a huge number of individual differences in the work that we did to try and control for that. Right. So, um, some people on general, in general, just like you said, are going to be more likely to engage in these kinds of, uh, ex- sexually exploitative behaviors than others. Right. So we looked at a bunch of different ones. We looked at rejection, rejection, sensitivity, uh, mate value, Um, if they've sexually assaulted women in the past, age, fraternity, college fraternity membership, um, a bunch of all these, a bunch of all these ones. And we found that the relationship between, uh, perceiving a woman was interested in sex and the low agency and then the sexual exploitation was really reliable no matter what we included. Mm -hmm. So it seems to be a very strong pattern. That's not to say though, just as you've said, that there are individual differences that do affect these kinds of things. Um, I think Antonia Abbey has done a lot of work on this. Uh, it's not particularly where we focused. We were just interested in making sure that our effects were not due to the individual differences. Mm. Mm. Um, darn, I was mm. hoping it was other guys that oh, were yeah. guilty, but no, I got to include myself in this. Yeah, no, look, I mean, it's, it's, I kind of, I raised the whole hashtag not all men as a, as a little bit of a glib comment, but it, I, I do want to emphasize it's, it's really not. You know, like there's a big difference between perceiving something psychologically and then acting on it. It doesn't mean that purely looking at the way perceptions influence attitudes is is not valuable to understanding human psychology. But I I think part of the reason why these things can be so controversial and so icky for, for both men and women is because women go, what do you mean? Why are you looking at what I'm wearing? Like, don't do that. And then men go, why? Like, just it's I'm not doing this. Just stop. You know, I'm not that kind of guy. And it's really, really tricky, you know, and this is something that I confront in a lot of the work that I do is is being able to open up a space that people can engage in these issues really kind of authentically and look at what could be going on without experiencing that the very virtue or the very notion of looking at them means someone's to blame and someone's at fault. You know, we kind of got to step away from that whole dynamic if we want to make a difference here. That's my opinion. Um, so you also have, uh, have done some work with rejection. Oh yeah, I have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, these are great studies. I mean, I, I, I always feel a little sorry for the guys while we so this was again with men with the guys while we're doing it because, uh, you know, they do get really kind of nasty 
not the rejections hurt, you know. Yeah. And then afterwards, we have to rebuild their egos and really make sure that they understand that it had nothing to do with them, and really sit down and make sure they're okay because ethically, right? You don't you you've got to make sure that you're not harming people. So we always make sure we do that. But um, the you know we've done work where we have men interact with um young men. We have them interact with a you know an attractive young woman, and um they're in a dating paradigm, so they do it kind of like through Skype. And they interact with this woman and we tell them she's single. We make sure they were single. She's single. You're single. Um, you're going to do like a little online date. Okay. So we want you to present the best part of yourself. Really make sure that um, you present yourself positively because afterwards you're going to rate each other. And your job is to really make sure that she rates you highly. And we do all this really just to ensure that they're invested in the interaction. Um, and then uh, we also say, look, one of the things that's important about this, though, is online dating is a bit different than face-to-face. So what we're interested in here is also some of those differences. So although you're going to interact with someone online, it's going to be a bit more of a limited conversation. What I mean by that is she's going to give a two-minute spiel about why she's a great romantic partner, and your job is just to listen and just see what judgments you make when your job is just listening. Then you're going to do the opposite. You're going to give a two-minute spiel about why you're a great partner and she's just going to listen. So there's not a lot of backwards and forwards. And I'm explaining this in detail because it's it's going to be relevant, No, right? Please do. Um, So, you know, they kind of are put in this awkward situation. They didn't know this was going to occur, but now they're sitting down and they listen to this quite attractive woman talk about why she's a great date and they sit there in silence. Then it's their turn. They talk for two minutes about all these ways that they're hoping that she likes and that she rates them really positively. And then afterwards we go, okay, now it's time for you to rate each other. And they get a private screen where they rate how much they liked her. And then uh, the ratings get transferred via the computer and they get her ratings back. Now, unbeknownst to them, uh, this is all rigged. Yeah. All right. It's you know, just a pre-recorded It's thing a pre-recorded and, video. Right. Yeah, they're not even interacting with a person. And we do that to standardize the interaction. And this is why just we make this catfish. whole story. Yeah. Yeah, they're, 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 they, you know, we had a very high um, amount of people believe that it was real. And this is why we do this whole, you don't talk, you know, it's important for these reasons. Online dating, not online dating, yada, yada. Um, and we find that it really works. Um, now, unbeknownst to them, not only are they interacting with a video, but every single person gets rejected in the exact same way. Um, and the rejection says that, you know, she rates them a five out of 10. Uh, she doesn't want to date them, doesn't think they would make a good partner. And then she gives them this little personalized comment at the end that says, you know, um, you seem like a nice guy and all, but they said, to be honest, and I feel like if we did get together, um, I feel like I could have done better. <laughs> Which in the in the uh, little interviews I did with a number of the men in my department, they said that that kind of line of I could have done better is particularly cutting. Yeah. It's like a really nice way of, of really being like, oh, it hurts. It yeah. hurts. So um, then afterwards they uh, get the opportunity to aggress against her. Now we don't tell them it's that. We tell them that they're just playing a cognitive task with her that measures reaction times. Um, and this is what's called the Taylor aggression paradigm. It's a really common measure of aggression used in social psychology research. Um, and why it's so effective is it involves um, it involves basically trying to react to something as fast as possible on a screen, you against the other person, and whoever reacts the fastest gets to punish the other person with a blast of noise. And the noise is obnoxious. Like, And, and you can choose whether the noise is going to be a split second and not too loud or whether the noise is going to go for a full two seconds and be really loud. And um, 
at the maximum range, it, it, it hurts. Like it hurts your ears. Not too much to cause damage, but enough that you're, you, you can get frustrated by it. And that's a good measure of aggression because aggression is we're dealing with these behaviors that are intending to harm another individual. So we say to them, okay, well, now you're going to do this cognitive reaction time task. But again, the task is rigged and it's not against her anyway because um, she's not really there because, you know, she was an actor. Um, so they then do this task and then what we do is measure uh, the extent to which they were likely to punish her with loud and long noises. And we, you know, we analyze that in a particular way. Um, and what we found was that, um, I, you know, I didn't say this at the very beginning, but um, the woman that they interacted with, this was either one, she was presented in one of two ways. So it's the exact same woman each time and she gives the exact same talk each time. But in one way, she's wearing a more revealing top, right? Because all you can see in the video is her from the waist up. And she describes herself as open to casual sex in, the, in this other screen that we used. But in the other way, exact same woman, right, just is wearing a T-shirt instead of a more revealing top and says that she's not open to casual sex. So super subtle manipulation that when we debrief people, most of the men said they didn't notice those particular parts. That's a pretty important. <laughs> yeah, well, not that they, um, they, they I mean, they saw it on the screen, yeah, yeah. right? But when you tell them what the study's about, they're kind of like, oh, really? Did that really? Yeah, right. Um, but when you look at it in the aggregate, I mean, so, uh, so <laughs> this is a, another subject that we have here in the study. Um, Hang on. So, I, I mean, I do, I like that guys after the fact go like, oh, I didn't even notice that casual sex part. I yeah, wasn't even yeah. paying attention. <laughs> I'm a little suspicious of yeah. that. Anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, whether they say they noticed it or not, we did find a, a, quite a good effect of right. that manipulation. Yeah. And what we found that was men who saw her in the more revealing outfit, right, even though she gave the exact same speech, all right, but when they saw her wearing that slightly more revealing top and saying she was interested in casual sex, they were more aggressive to her after she rejected them. Mm. Um, now, remember, she rejects everybody, right? Um, but we found that it wasn't just about the clothing. It was the extent to which the clothing activated these sex goals that we were talking about, right? So the idea here, one way to think about it is, you know, you see a woman in sexy clothes and then you interact with her and, you you know, I am imagining that you're thinking as a young man, all right, we're doing this online date. Hey, she's pretty cute right? And she seems like she likes me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm more thinking about sex or even just romance, okay? This doesn't specifically have to be you're thinking about like penetrative sex at that moment. It's just the concept has been activated. Sure. And to the extent that that concept's activated, when she then rejects you, it probably feels worse. Yeah. Right? It probably, you got your hopes up that you much You got your more. hopes up, now they come crashing down and it probably also feels worse for your ego. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah kind of like you just feel worse about the whole thing. And the, they're then more punitive towards her afterwards. They are more aggressive towards her if she was wearing the sexy clothes and rejected them. I mean, I, I do think that our our brains just kind of are pretty protective of any ideas that we have, whether it's like a political idea or anything. I mean, it takes for a brain to put together an idea, it has to kind of maybe put together some sort of scaffolding or something like that or some structure that you can then access readily so you kind of build up this idea of yourself that you then are trying to defend and and to have 
that idea of yourself come crashing down. Right. Uh, yeah, we make associations. You know, we make judgments about ourselves, about others, based on how we perceive the world to be, um, and we don't like it when our world, well, when our worldview is proved wrong. You know, the the it doesn't mean though. Necess- it doesn't. What it doesn't mean is that men who interact with women who are in sexy clothes and then get rejected, well, then it's okay if they decide they're right. going to assault this one because they felt bad. Like, so you, again, it's another one of these right. cases. You really got to be sensitive to the distinction here. Okay, the, the, you, you know, I think we can both... Yeah, ha- guys shouldn't bring air horns to bars for when they get rejected. <laughs> like, right. I don't want you anyway. Exactly. <laughs> right in the ear. No, that's not going to be a good strategy. Right. Um, so you kind of, I think, need to have some understanding and compassion for the men in the situation, whilst also being really firm that your experience of a bruised ego doesn't justify you in any way harming or trying to sexually assault a woman. You know, I believe that we can hold those views in our mind and it's important that we do so and really appreciate the implications on both sides of the story. Hmm. Well, we just got done on the last episode talking with Tom about aggression in general mm. Mm. and then and talking about the dorsal anterior cingulate. Oh, Nailed yeah. It. Right. yeah. And, uh... You sounded smart just then. <laughs> oh, yeah. And... and um, talking about how this uh, the the more the more you can activate this kind of the more you can lower aggression and how you can kind of kind of uh, uh, play these scenarios out ahead of time if you know you're going to be going into the office and uh, a particular day a particular work meeting is going to be particularly stressful and you know that's a trigger for you and you're going to get that much more ang- perhaps Using combining all of this research in the future, hmm. we might be able to train ourselves. If you're a guy and you're going out for a night out and you're going to try to pick up women and, hmm. and you know that rejection is going to just come along with putting yourself out there and taking those chances, yeah. and especially if you want to swing for the fences, then right, you got to be right. ready for that for that maybe maybe mentally preparing ahead of time for rejection might might uh might alleviate some of that uh some of that pain and aggression afterwards yeah i think that's a really really good point you know i think that could make a huge difference and i also think just being sensitive to just because you have a goal doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to get fulfilled and doesn't mean anything about you if it doesn't get fulfilled you know this is just something that we tend to learn more and more as we get older Right. But particularly when you're like a younger person driven by all these hormones and everything that's going on, it can be easy to equate sexual success with personal success. You know, it means something about you. And, uh, you know, you kind of got to step away from that as a society. Well, it's also when you're when you're younger, you're also just trying to kind of figure out these. It's it's like um, uh, I'm just starting to. try to take better care of myself again mm. um i go on streaks in life and now like trying to go back into the gym i get really really frustrated whereas when i've been right. doing it for a while and i have a little more confidence and like okay i know what i'm doing in this crossfit <laughs> like <a> class <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> the sexual rejection muscle <laughs> yeah, yeah i'm sure they'll find that somewhere in the brain <laughs> <laughs> so i i mean i i do think that uh that young people in general when, when they're a little more confused and trying mm. to figure this out, it's going to lead to a little more frustration. Sure, makes sense. What's your hope for your work kind mm. of translating into um, translating into the real world? Mm. Um, uh, 
either answer that question or mm. this one or mm-hmm. both. Um, the other thing is I'd like to know is uh, I I decide that um, so the president decides like uh, hey we we like science all this it would have to like it, like somehow um, in in America or something like like Donald Trump is so unpredictable who knows maybe one day he wakes up and goes like Science. <laughs> it's my new best friend. I am the best at science. We're, we're, we're gonna, I do science so yeah, good. We're gonna, we're gonna stick all this money into science, and, and now, and now you. Uh, this translates all around the world. It has this ripple effect, and and everyone's going crazy about this science stuff mm-hmm. and learning. And now you have this unlimited amount of resources and funding and this cutting edge technology Mm. what would you like to do in the future with your research Mm. and what would you what would kind of some of the ultimate payoffs um in the real world uh, what would you like to see yeah yeah it's it's a bit like a utopia, isn't it? You know, just having unlimited research <laughs> to do whatever you want. Um, look, I you think you got a dream. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Look, I think the kind of um, one of the real goals for me, and one of the things that's always been important for me, is being able to work towards a society where people experience, um, you know, equal opportunity right? The ability to fulfill on what really matters to them. And I kind of mean this across all different cultures. And I've, I've looked at women uh, in particular because of the disadvantages that they face. But, you know, I also think that one of the things that is really under-acknowledged is the degree to which in our particular social structure, which is very much dominated by men, right? And very much kind of also hugely unequal between men and between men and women as well, is not only do you get you know, women as a group suffering, you also get a large group of men who are at the bottom of that hierarchy. Yeah, tons of most of the homeless population right? and most of yes. prisons. Most men. of the, the suicide is much greater among men as well. Right. Um, but even if they're not homeless, you know, you, you have this group of men who are uh, don't have the same educational opportunities, who might be poor, who are at significant disadvantages. And in some ways more so than women from that group. And here's why, right? Women tend to marry up, okay? And they marry up for a variety of different reasons. Um, In particular, that is going to work alongside the degree to which that we have unequal resource distribution, okay? Because when resource distribution is unequal, it makes more sense for women to marry up because they improve their lot in life. Right. But in that kind of system, you get a large group of men who, who, I mean, who is, who's going to marry them? Yeah, a lot of evolutionary losers. In right. The, right. And, and um, you know, it, it's, I, I found it a real failure of, uh, of feminist insight that particularly in a lot of those groups of men, they see the problem is feminism. Right. That that's the source of their disadvantage. And it's not. The source of their disadvantage is the same kind of patriarchal structures that feminists are, are angry about. It's right. the exact same source and they don't see that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not because uh, oh, women are getting uppity or something like that. It's because that uh, there's dudes with millions of dollars that you don't have. That's right. And that those women, the, their main access to try and improve their lot in many places is to marry those men not to make the millions themselves. Right. So that's why you see these kinds of, these, you know, these kinds of patterns. Um, that's a little tangential, but it kind of brings me no, to... No, I think that's really important. I think it's really important yeah. too. Um, and 
you know, I... But of course, I might be saying that just trying to manipulate women right now. For all I know, maybe I'm cognitively biased into Maybe this is... Well, that you think it's really important. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Me agreeing with this. Maybe this is my way of manipulating to, to spread my genes. Who knows? Look, I, I don't, maybe. I don't... <laughs> it's very I difficult to understand. I can't trust my own brain anymore. I've been Ooh. doing this podcast for three years. I oh, have yeah. no trust left in any of my own ideas or judgments. Well, sometimes that kind of skepticism can be healthy, yeah. you know? Um, I, I think that really if I had this kind of unlimited research pool of things that I could do, I would focus on those kinds of ideas, mm-hmm. right? And um, one of the things I'm doing right now is looking at men's rights activism, right? So this the men's rights, do you know about this, this movement for men's rights activism? Um, I mean, I kind of don't pay attention to that. Because yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm aware that, yeah, there's like the red pill guys out things, there. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. that's kind of what I'm talking about. It's this movement um, of men who are saying they're really hard done by the system, but again, they perceive the system that they're really mainly hard done by as women, right? Um, which is just a mischaracterization, right. as I've said, of the system. Yeah. Um, so partly what I'm interested in doing is, is also understanding and educating that group of people. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and really finding a way for there to be, a, you know, a future where we can acknowledge biological influences, we can acknowledge sociocultural in- influences, we can understand that they feed into each other, and that that doesn't mean that men and women have to be considered to be, um, you know, these carbon copy blank slate duplicates for us to have a future where both men and women are respected and treated in ways that they can have the agency and ability to do whatever it is that they want to do. That's that's the utopia. That's the that's, utopia, that's yeah. That's the dream. I'm that, working on it. That's wonderful. Mm. Um, all right, well, and from a more... Um, uh, uh, what people can do today, practical standpoint, yeah. I, I give, um, I, I always give, well, new thing that I do is I give my guests an opportunity to give listeners an extra credit assignment yeah, of, of something they can, or multiple um, suggestions for mm. things. So uh, what's your extra credit assignment? For the Look, week? it's a big one. Um, but it, you know, take it on like if you're it. in the mood. Um, I would recommend that people read a particular book. Yeah, and it's um it's a book that's actually been around for a while. It's called um The Bible. Yes, <laughs> that's right. How did you know? It's got some great evolutionary thinking in it. Uh no, not the Bible. Um it's a book called um Mother Nature. And it's by a woman called Sarah Hardy. Oh, Sarah's great. I, I oh, haven't yeah. read that book. But, oh you uh, should. I've- seen a bunch of her stuff oh i've not met her but i hope to one day yeah i i um i find myself very guided by her thought and the way that she talks about things and um, in particular i've personally found understanding uh the behaviors in primates and how these kinds of things evolved has given me a unique perspective of understanding the history of where some things in humans may have come from um and i you know i just found particularly that that book was um a really great example of how to deal with the 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 large scale of some of the things that we deal with now in the conflict between men and women Um, and also being able to um, acknowledge how mothering works right we haven't really talked about that much but we have these stereotypes about mothers as well like they're um, somehow not competitive or not agentic and they're all just like 
passive caregivers and it just could not be further from the truth and I think part of being able to to, um, you know really do away with those stereotypes is being educated on the history of how these types of things work and I and I just could not more highly recommend that people read that book that's wonderful All right. Well, thank you, Candace. No, for my pleasure. Thanks me. for having me on the show. Yeah, and thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. And we'll talk with you next week. Thank you. Next week, we have a real fun conversation about video games and how they have evolved, how they influence us and how we can potentially use them for education uh, more and more in the future. Terrific episode. And uh, also next week, I believe, uh, we, uh, if not next week, very soon, we're going to start running ads on the show. Um, I kind of had this uh, in my ideal world. I never wanted to run an ad on this show, and I kind of wanted to support this podcast through my stand-up and if anything you know hoping that the podcast would lead to um you know filling up rooms more which would uh get me more money stand-up wise and so it would kind of pay for itself that way and and i really do appreciate all you guys that do come out to shows but um stand-up is a fickle fickle business and there is ups and downs and uh everything's kind of gravy when i have a big tour going on and everything but then i'm in the middle of kind of figuring out my next move and have a million different balls in the air a bunch of exciting stuff going on but um but nothing is solid and uh that just the my income is so incredibly unpredictable that uh that I just uh, honestly don't know what else to do. I tried doing the Patreon thing, and um, that's just uh, and that's growing. It's not enough yet to really um, support the show, but I do appreciate all of you that have gone on there. Every little bit does help, and uh, I just it's. It's, uh, I, I can't have this podcast, if I want this podcast to be consistent and higher quality, then it can't fluctuate with the ups and downs of my stand-up career, and I would love to be able to do less stand-up and more podcasting, and so, uh, so yeah, I hope you guys don't mind ads, and I hope that, that, um, that, uh, you are, uh, supportive of the sponsors and all of that, I, uh, it's just, it's this this the here we are podcast is all grown up and this is part of growing up as having responsibilities and we got bills to pay so so yeah that's happening and i appreciate your support and um and especially all of you that have uh left reviews on itunes and and ratings and all that would means an awful lot to me it's really helped build the show uh up it's helped tremendously uh you really have no idea how much that helps getting getting it bumped up and suggested to other people on itunes and all that good stuff so uh so thanks for all the support thus far and um and thanks in advance for your support in the future those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorites 
Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Yin Yang Twins. Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would, he even, why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, <laughs> oh my God. he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. <laughs> Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. <laughs> oh, my God. 